Welcome to Tycoons of Small Biz, a podcast where small business owners are celebrated as the backbone of the American economy. Each week, we introduce you to tycoons who share their stories and advice so that small business owners may learn from their experiences. Tycoons is powered by Backbone Planning Partners and Pivotal Advisors. Join us now as our hosts connect you to today's tycoons. Good afternoon, tycoons, and welcome to today's episode of Tycoons of Small Biz. I'm your host here, as always, coming to you live from Gilbert, Arizona. It's been raining the last couple of days, which uh, most people don't think that happens in the uh, in the desert, but it absolutely does. Uh, rained quite hard, actually, hard enough that I couldn't hang my Christmas lights over the weekend, so I had to do that yesterday. But uh, if this is the first time you're listening to our podcast, you're wondering what it is we do here at Tycoons. We are a business podcast that's put together by small business owners for small business owners. We believe that the small business owner is truly the backbone of the American economy. And so about two years ago, two and a half years ago, my partner Landon and I decided that we were going to launch a podcast to highlight small businesses and give them an opportunity to tell their stories, share their successes, share their failures in hopes that it props up other entrepreneurs that are out there listening as well. So with that being said, we definitely have on the show today a tycoon of small biz. We've got Tyler Robertson, CEO and founder of Diesel Laptops from Chapin, South Carolina. Tyler, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. And yeah, I thought it never rained out in the desert. So always interesting to hear that. <laughs> yeah, it rains. It rains quite a bit, actually. We get a lot in the summer. We get We have monsoon season. So you know, we have what are called retention basins in our neighborhood to capture all the water because it is hot, obviously, that the soil gets hard and it doesn't want to absorb the water when it comes. And so it, you know, it fills up. I mean, enough, enough so that sometimes my kids, when they were younger, would take the stand-up paddle boards to the retention basins and, and stand-up paddleboard in the retention basin. Yeah, paddling in the in the desert. So sounds sounds unique. Yeah, you bet. So Tyler, you know, appreciate you coming on. You're obviously, you've got this organization, Diesel Laptops. Before we get into kind of what that is and how you got that started, we always have our guests tell us a little bit about themselves personally. So tell us what you'd like us to know, where you grew up, how many kids in your family, do you have kids today, are you married, did you go to college, if so, what did you study, you know, those sorts of things. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll go backwards. Yeah, I do have I do have kids. They're, they're 9 and 11. Uh, so, you know, you having kids definitely puts a different perspective on your life and why you do things in the past you choose. That's definitely a, a journey that I think a lot of people don't realize until they, until they do it. But yeah, so I grew up in Northern Minnesota, went to college. I uh, actually got kicked out of college for bad grades. And I, I guess I learned if you don't go to school, you end up getting kicked out because you don't pass the test. So that was a, that was a life lesson at an early age. So I did night school and had to go work for my dad. And, but that's how I got involved in the trucking industry, the truck repair industry specifically. So People don't realize that the truck repair world, uh, there's somewhere around $80 billion a year spent on parts and labor, just keeping all these commercial trucks running up and down the road. Um, it's things people don't really pay attention to or see much of. Um, and that diesel world also includes the off-highway stuff, which is even bigger, which is all the things that move dirt, uh, move earth, build things. So generators, excavators, bulldozers, farm tractors, these are all diesel-powered things, even though we hear about the EV movement and all that stuff. And I started my company, uh, it'll be eight years in March. Um, so it was just me, my garage, dining room table. Started it with about $1,000 and, and it grew really, really fast to what it is today. So we're just trying to keep riding that wave. Yeah, I mean, that's obviously a heck of a story. We'll dive into that, you know, eight years to, you know, from your dining room table to, I think it's 230-ish employees now. Is that right? Yeah, 230. We'll do a little north of, uh, you know, between 70 and 75 million in revenue this year. We're still growing 35, 40% year over year. And we did a bootstrapping. We didn't we didn't do it like the, the new way, I guess, right? You go raise a bunch of money, get investors and, and start spending. We did it uh, the only way I knew how, which was like make a dollar, you know, profit, spend a dollar profit <laughs> just, and do that for years. And we still, we still do a lot of that today because we just, we really believe in the future and the, the runway in front of us over here at these laptops. Yeah, you're, you're right. I mean, we've talked about that a few times, you know, you're, we've done 130 something episodes of this, of this show. And we've had every kind of business you can think of. We've had some that have taken, you know, private equity money, some that have taken venture capital money, some that have bootstrapped it. You're right. The new the new deal is kind of come up with an idea 
And a lot of times pre-revenue, you're out there raising money and people are, you know, investing in your, in your business. But the, the reality is still the lion's share of businesses are bootstrapped exactly the way that you did. Tell us, was that a conscious decision or you just felt like you didn't know any better at that point? What's the, what's the thought process there? Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, really, I didn't, I didn't know any better. I didn't feel like I needed to. So as I was going there, like I never, I never set out, I mean, you know, I say I started the thousand dollars and that was even before the eight years that was like part-time working for someone else, just trying to make some beer money to, to, to do a thing. And I was just one of those people where I was like, man, if I make any profit at all, I'm just going to spend it and keep, keep growing my company. I guess at that point, I wasn't even thinking about it because I didn't need to. I had cash flow and things were going fine. Don't get me wrong. There was a lot of like stupid and expensive lessons learned about paying taxes. Should be that quarterly, not annually. <laughs> you <don't laughs> cash to pay your taxes all of a sudden, right? Or uh, I remember the first time we got a big purchase order for, you know, it was the first time we got an over a six-figure order. And this is when we're doing like six figures a month. And, um, and I knew all these things because I've been in business, but you start thinking like, man, they want 60-day terms from when they get it. And I got to prepay for all the, all the cost of goods and pay payroll and all these things. And those are, those are really hard things. So I never understood, like you read these things and people say, oh, like the number one reason small businesses go to business is, is cash or, you know, or growth or whatever. And um, I don't know if that's true or not, but you hear those things and like, okay, I totally get it because I was basically running broke there for, you know, four or five years. We didn't have any cash in the bank because we were, we were spending it fast as we could. I, I, when I started my business, I swore like, I'm going to have, I'm going to have very little inventory and no receivables. People can all pay me cash up front if they want to do business. And then I can tell people sitting here today, you know, we got like $12 million tied up in those things. And that that's cash that got sucked out of somewhere to, to afford to have those things. Cause I'm, I'm really kind of weird in the fact I don't like debt either. So we have, we have no debt inside the company. So debt's risk to us, to me at least. So maybe that even holds us back sometimes, but yeah, I just never really had the need to, or, or, or the want to, I can say, you know, look, looking forward, I think life's a little bit different now where it's like, okay, now we're here, we're established, we got a brand name, we're profitable, we're growing. Where do I want to go the next five years, the next seven years? Like what, where, how long am I here for? What's the exit strategy? And that, when I look at through that lens, like maybe taking on some debt or doing some things like giving up equity starts to make a lot of sense all of a sudden versus the early years. So maybe I thought about it backwards. I don't know, but that's kind of the, the way it rolled out for us. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think obviously it's it's worked out fine and, and I, it's definitely not thinking about it backwards. I think that a lot of times business owners go to the opposite extreme, right? So they're either raising money from the get-go or they're borrowing more money than they need to or taking bets that they shouldn't be taking, et cetera. So there, there's a lot of a lot of things that can go wrong, obviously, if you do it the other way as well. But you know, I, I want to hit real quick on the cash flow thing and then I'm gonna have you kind of back up and tell us exactly what, you know, diesel laptops does. I grew up on a farm with a dad and a stepdad that were both long haul truck drivers. So I'm, I'm right there with you. I, I understand this industry as, as well as I can, you know, as somebody who's never actually worked in it, but I've ridden in those trucks as a kid and, and spent a lot of time doing that. But um, the cash flow thing, you know, it's, it's funny because a lot of people who are listening to this show are running a business that does call it 2 million to 5 million in revenue. And when they, you know, when they hear that businesses that are doing seven, eight, 10, 50, 70 million in revenue, that they still have to watch their cash flow, I think they're a little bit surprised by that. So what what's kind of your you know response to that? Well, I, I thought as I was scaling up, like, man, this is going to be so much easier the bigger we get because the dollars won't, won't be as big, right? Or matter as much. And I can tell people that is not the case. <laughs> the risks just get bigger. They got more zeros. And I, I tell people all the time, like, I'm, I'm kind of like, it's almost like monopoly money sometimes, right? You're looking at spreadsheets and seeing bank accounts and those things you can't, you don't comprehend and how much, how much cash is going through the business. Um, but it, it is, it is a big deal. Like I can tell people, I still, I get a daily cash report every single day from our, from our team. Like I, we know exactly how much is an account, what came in, what went out yesterday, how much is in transit. Like here's how much cash we have. So we, we, we pay a really close attention to that. We have cash forecasting that we do up to 12 weeks in advance. So we kind of see where things are going, but, but paying attention to cash is an important thing. And again, another thing I knew a long time ago and heard 
was, you know, small businesses run off income statements, big businesses run off balance sheets. And I was like, what does that mean? I don't get it. Like, but now I'm like, oh, now I totally get it. Like, this is, like I understand, like, it's about an ROI on the assets. You start looking at it being like, okay, we have this much in assets. Like, man, if I had that in cash, I could just go make my 8% a year in the stock market in most years and not have to do a thing. Like we, we you know, like you start realizing what the, the measuring stick is you're up against. And that got to be, and it still is a challenge. Like, how do we leverage how do we leverage the assets we have? And there's been points where I'm like, we have too much cash in the bank. We got inflation going on. That means my cash is worth less next month than it is this month. It's sitting there doing nothing. Like, what are we, what are we doing here? What's our strategy? Like, let's get to deploy this. Like, let's, let's go figure this out to keep growing the company. So everyone worries about money. Warren Buffett worries about money. Elon Musk worries about money. I worry about money. So do your listeners. We solve different problems at the end of the day on what to do with it. And it, the risks just get, just get a lot bigger um, as, you, as you go through that process scaling up. Yeah, for sure. All right, so let's let's back up a little bit. Let tell us, you know, what it really was that forced you to quit your job, start this thing, and then you know dovetail that into what exactly you guys do. Because yeah, I don't believe that you're a, a laptop company per se. You're not selling laptops like Dell or Gateway or you know any of those yeah. companies. Yeah, and our, and our laptops definitely do not run off diesel. They're they're electric. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, so what it was is I I grew up in the truck repair industry, and that's what happened when I kicked out of college. I kind of stumbled into this industry, and my family had a business. They ended up selling it. I stayed with the new owners. I got fired. Uh, then I ended up finding a new job down here in the south. So that was, that'll happen in Minnesota. Moved down to South Carolina, and this is really I really got to work for like a bigger organization that does a lot of truck repair. And I was a service manager. So anyone that's ever been and brought their car in knows you bring your car in, they write you do a work order and they write you up and they fix it. And that's what we did, but for commercial trucks. So the, the big difference between auto and commercial is that automobiles are almost like a leisure or almost like a luxury item for, for a lot of people in most cases. They have more than one a lot of times. Uh, with commercial trucks, they are a tool to make somebody money. Like that is, that is, that is what a commercial truck is. So downtime to them is a really big deal. A downtime for an 18-wheeler is $1,000 a day they're losing. Downtime for you personally, not having a car, no big deal. Go rent one or borrow somebody's or use your spare. So it's totally different, different economics. And when I ran a service department, and when you run a shop, and any automotive shop loves this, they want to be booked up for weeks in advance because they know they're going to maximize revenue on every single customer that walks in the shop. Their technicians are paid flat rate, which means they're paid how much they build on how much they work. They're happy. Parts of, like Everyone's happy, except for the customer. The customer hates it because now he's like, I got to wait two or three weeks to get my vehicle work done. What are you doing? You're screwing my business. I can't deliver my products. I can't go make money. So what I did in that situation, I was like, well, I, I have a little more of a heart for customers versus the person that was running the shop before. So I, I was like, okay, my foreman, my service riders, myself, customer comes in, let's immediately go to the truck hook the laptop up to see what the fault codes are and what the situation is in the truck because the check engine lights are on or doesn't start or whatever. So we would do that. And we did that so we could tell the customer, hey, it's not that big a deal. Bring it back next Tuesday when I have time. I'll get you right in. Otherwise, it's sitting here until then. Anyway. Or like, man, this is horrible. You need to keep it here, right? We were able to identify the problem, make, let the customer make a business decision. Well, you do that for customers and they start asking, well, how do I get that tool? Like, I don't, I don't want to have to come to you guys every time. I'll just hook it up myself. And we're like, you can't have it. We're the dealership. That's why you have to come to me. That worked. But then the company, they wanted to promote me. So they said, before we have you run the store, we want you to go work in the parts department, run the parts department. So same physical rooftop, different division of the company. I now report to a different person at corporate. And that person's mentality was, if you can make any money selling anything, sell it. I don't care if it's a truck part. I don't care if it's a cheeseburger. I don't care if it's diagnostics, tools, and hardware. So like, it's, gonna, it's really going to upset the guy next door in the service shop. He's like, I don't care. That's his problem, not mine. It was like, it's that mentality inside these dealerships. So all right. So what I learned was customers were asking for software, and we were selling it to them. But you end up with a 55, 60, 70-year-old shop owner, and you hand him a piece of software. He doesn't know how to install it. He doesn't know how to configure the adapter or the firmware, update firmware, or do any of the stuff. He just wants to fix his truck. That's what he's good at, not installing software. So they started asking me to like install the software they bought from their computers. Great, we'll do that. Well, then it would quickly became, well, now I can't connect to the vehicle. Can you help me? No problem. Let me remote in over the internet. I'll help you connect to the vehicle. And then it quickly became all these other problems. And finally, I was like, stop. 
why don't I just build a product? I'll buy the hardware and software for my own company. I will buy a laptop from somewhere else. I'll make a kit ready to go. I'll resell it back to my own company and they can sell it to customers. Now I'm not having to deal with installs, configurations, and all the stuff. And that's really where Diesel Laptops got started. It was my own, my own company that I was working for was, was my, my only customer in the very beginning. And it just ended up branching out from there over time. Wow. That's a cool story. So how many different states do you have customers in now? Yeah, all, all 50 easy. I mean, we're in Canada. We've really migrated beyond just selling people tools. So what we learned, and this is, this is like a painful truth we have to tell customers. Like, look, you buying this $500 tool or this $10,000 tool isn't going to help you fix more trucks. Like, it's not a magic bullet. You can't hook it up and hit a button and your truck's fixed. That's not the way this works. It'll tell you what's wrong. It'll let you run the test to test the components, but you need some missing pieces. You need, you need to have repair information on how to actually fix what the tool tells you is wrong. So we had to build that. We need to teach you how to use the software. We have to teach you how to properly diagnose and repair trucks because there's not that, that doesn't exist in the market. And we need to give you a call center to help these people. So asking about where we ship to and everything, it's really North America. We're definitely in South America, Central America. We ship to Australia quite frequently. But we actually end up opening up physical centers across the United States now where we do hands-on training for employee, for customers um, and some of our employees. Um, so there's a training class going on somewhere in the United States as, we, as we're talking here, people are listening to this. So it's really allowed us to expand the footprint and come to more of them as a solution, not just a product. And that's what people really want, is they want solutions to their problems. They don't want to buy a product. So are the customers solely repair shops or people who also have fleets of vehicles would buy this as well? Yeah, so it's really like, Four, four core demographics we hit. Like one is definitely people that fix people's vehicles. That's number one. Number two, you're talking about people that own trucks, fleets. Some of those guys do their own maintenance. Some don't. We sell to those guys as well. We're in the, the off-highway equipment industry is like actually the biggest market segment we have. So people don't realize there's more off-highway diesel engines than there are on-highway diesel engines. We sell a lot into that market. And then marine is another industry where they got diesel marine powered equipment. Plus we get into the gas stuff a little bit uh, on the marine side and the power sports and, and that type of thing. So it's a huge wide market. And what I didn't realize was how big off highway was when I started this. I was a truck guy. And then I also just kind of started to realize like, wait a second, that same John Deere excavator in the U.S. is the same John Deere excavator in Australia. Like, why aren't we over in Australia selling these things as well? So we, we find one thing led to like a bigger and bigger market share. So our total addressable market is just, it's pretty massive at this point uh, across the, across the globe. Yeah. So obviously understanding that there's a worldwide need for this and, you know, the products are essentially the same, I guess, you know, steering wheels on the other side of this, of the other side of the car sometimes, but other than that, it's essentially the same vehicle. But if we go way back to kind of the beginning, right? So you had your, the company you worked for was your first customer. How did you how did you begin the scaling process? What was the the actual plan from the begin from the get? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the plan at the beginning wasn't to scale. It was just like I said, make some beer money, right? Like that was the whole the whole idea of it. Um, what happened was, is I was I was selling a pretty good amount through my own company, and it just it was like word of mouth. We weren't marketing them. They weren't they weren't anywhere in display. It was just customers kept asking our salespeople like for solutions. So. So that was going well. And then I got better. Like the, the problem with sales is like, you got to go like build the product. So I was like buying used laptops off eBay. So like these fully rugged ones you can like step on and all these things. And then I, I had to figure out like, man, this takes forever at night, like installing software one at a time and running Windows updates and all the things. So, you know, you start to find efficiencies in your company. So you're like, oh, well, let's, let's start duplicating hard drives instead of actually installing software one at a time. And um, so like on that note, it was like, well, first we'll do a one-to-one -one duplicator. Then it was like, I can do two hard drives at one time and then a four-to-one and a 10-to-one. So you, you end up finding like these, these scalable solutions to just keep saving you time in the, in the process. So then I had to eventually hire some people. They used to mow my, mow my lawn. They're my, they're my weekly lawn maintenance people. Uh, they're great neighbors of ours. We have to be friends with them. And I'm like, man, I can't even keep up like, cleaning up the laptops and putting hard drives in them and just doing that kind of stuff. Like, would you guys like to do this? And they said, sure. So they, they did the first one. I can tell you now, you know, eight years later, they've done over 32,000 of them. They, they have employees. They, that that's their business. It's just refurbishing laptops and doing, doing laptop type prep work for us. 
So mm -hmm. it's just been a constant iteration on the production side, finding efficiency solutions and outsourcing and just saying, I, I can't do this anymore. I got to give up control and give it to somebody else. And I know that's hard for a lot of entrepreneurs that, that want to control the whole process. On the sales side, you know, the internet's the great equalizer. And that's, that's what I quickly found out was like, okay, I'm selling them here in South Carolina through my one retail channel. Um, I put the first one on eBay and it was more of like a universal one that would connect to any make model truck. And uh, it sold within like a day. I'm like, well, holy crap, that was, that was quick. I'm like, I'm going to go put it, I'm going to put that same thing back on there, but I'll mark the price up like 200 bucks and we'll see what happens. And it sold like right away again. I'm like, oh, then I, you know, put it back on and raise another $200. And right. And, and all of a sudden you start to realize like, oh, well, this is going great on eBay. Um, and this is like, you know, seven, eight, nine years ago, probably yeah, nine, 10 years ago. And eBay was pretty good, but eBay started clamping down on their sellers and wanting them to ship faster and lower prices and do all these things. And I was, I woke up one day, I was like, man, if, if eBay like picks me off or does something I don't like, like I'm screwed. Like that's my only other channel. I need to, I need to go own control my own destiny here. So I'm going to build a website. And I literally built like the world's crappiest e-commerce website you can imagine uh, out there. But I was shocked when the first sales order came through on it. I was like, really? Who, who? I actually called the customer and I was like, who are you? How'd you find me? And why did you buy this? Um, yeah. And it was legit, right? So I was like, this is, this is crazy. So let me figure out this internet thing and figure out, you know, search optimization and figure out how to get traffic and relevant traffic and how to convert traffic. And like, I got, I got focused on that and it's amazing what, what website traffic can do for a business. Like that's our number one lead gen is now today organic, organic searches on the internet. Um, and it not used to be that way because, you know, we started with no brand, no name, no nothing. We had to do it other ways. So it's, it's a, it's a mountain to climb, but yeah, just the concentration. I get, and I, I, again, to like bring us to current day, I was just in a meeting for two hours yesterday talking about processes. How can we, how can we be, how can we better, be better at this process to, to do more revenue, to do more things more efficiently? So it never stops. And that's, I think maybe one of the key things we've done here is just continually focus on improving the processes and taking the efficiency, inefficiency out of the equation whenever possible. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm, I'm interested in, in your progression personally, right? So you talked about basically doing this to, to earn some extra beer money and, you know, it, it's morphed into a lot more, but you've literally gone from you building it to then taking your lawn maintenance crew and having them refurbish laptops for you. Then they've turned this into a fully legitimate business that you subcontract to. And now you're leading an organization that does 70, 75 million in revenue with 230 employees. So what's that journey been like for you as a leader and having to, even though you didn't set out to, having to become the leader of an organization that is still technically a small business for the listeners who aren't thinking, you know, that it is up to 500 employees, according to the SBA, is a, is a small business in our country. But it's it's a larger organization than most people that are listening to this program would set out to build. So here's the analogy I always use, and I'll, I'll, tell, I'll tell the story we went through it, right? Like two guys start a pizza shop right? One guy, he, he builds his to like one store. It's doing great. Maybe it was a second location in town. And the other guy who sells the exact same pizza, actually even worse pizza. It's not even, the, it's not even better than the other guy that's got two stores. It's worse, right? Cheaper, worse quality. That guy builds up to 10,000 stores and 10 billion a year in revenue, right? And what, what was the difference there? It's not the market, right? They're all, all people eating pizzas. It's not the product. He had a worse product than the other guy. But why could he build his up so big and so fast? And it really became like what that person chose it to be and where he wanted to go with it and the things he put in place to make it happen. I think what happens in a lot of businesses I worked for before, a lot of people I work with today and uh, companies I see is you hit, this, this is, I'll even say my family's business back home. You, you hit a certain revenue or employee number and then you get stuck and you're there. And I think when people that are in that position, if they're nodding their heads, they'll probably also look at it. And if I'm like, you know what? I bet you spend most of your day putting out fires. I bet you spend most of your day just worrying about what you got to do that day to get, to get the customers out the door happy and make the, make the business tick. Like that's where they're spending 99% of their focus. And that's where I was too. And we got, we got stuck at about 20 to 25 million in revenue and a certain number of employees and the revenue, it was really choppy. It was like huge months and low months. And when you looked at the whole year, you're like, man, we really... We really didn't do much this year. We really didn't grow like we have been. We've been doubling. 
but now we, we hit a wall and I'm like, I'm working more hours, more stressed out. Like people are upset. Customers are upset. We're stumbling on ourselves. Like what, what in the heck is going on here? I think that's a story. A lot of small businesses find themselves in a situation in the truth of it is that I had to realize was it was my fault. I was the one in the way I was the one not giving up control and the things I didn't need to control anymore. I didn't need to be doing a lot of the things I was doing. It was because I had that mentality, like, I'm, they're not going to do it right. They're not going to do it my way. It's going to be, they're, they're going to upset a customer if I don't do this thing, right? Like that, that was all the things going through my head. And I was in that, I was in that moment. I'm still dealing with customer sales calls and, and things I shouldn't be doing with that whole sales team. Why am I taking a sales call? This shouldn't be my job. And that was a really, that was a really pivotal moment. I think when I finally realized that and was like, okay, like we are never going to grow this thing unless I stop doing all the things I'm doing and start doing all the things I should be doing. And we went through a process there with a consulting company that we brought in, someone I'd, we had kind of worked with before. I brought in a vice president um, that I worked with before. We've been kind of through similar things, understood it. And we, we really, it really got me focused and got our team focused on what do we really need to be spending our time on? Um, and I, I think like an exercise most people could do is like, go, go log what you do every 15 minutes. And I think you'll come to find out you're, you're, you're spending a lot of time on things you probably shouldn't be spending time on and got to get outside that mindset. If you want to keep growing your company and, and, and growing it. Um, and that's, that's really a difference between like a professionally managed company and someone just shooting from the hip, trying to, trying to grow a business. And it, it, I, I know I say that people are like, Oh, corporate talk, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, <laughs> You don't, you don't have a choice. If you want to scale it up, you've got to put some processes and some structure in place and trust a bunch of people. And that, that trust can be hard, man. I've had people steal from me. I've had a lot of bad things happen, but you've got to, you have to, if you want to keep moving it forward. Yeah. Yeah. And honestly, I hope that anybody who's listening to this program listens to that and puts it in practice. Cause here's the reality businesses pay me and my business partner tens of thousands of dollars to learn what you just said. And, and that's the reality is we sit there and we say, look, you got to get out of your own way with this and this and this and this, it, if that's what you want to do, because that's the key, right? You're, to use your analogy, the pizza shop owner with one or two locations may have a great life, may have a good income. The other one is going a different, you know, taking a different path and their personal income at some point is going to change. But Early on, if you don't make those dis, those those conscious decisions to put other people in place and pay them, which then means less money to you, right? You're not going to be able to scale. And so it, it's about owners not being willing or able to get out of their own way is what stops most businesses that want to scale in our company from scale. Yeah, I'm I am not the highest paid employee in my company still today, right? Like salary wise I am, but because of the commissions we pay and salespeople, like there's people that make way more money than I do. But I, I know the long game. I know the I know the value I'm building. Um yeah. I know I know I've created something pretty special here that not only has the value side, but can go help help an industry that really needs help. You gotta make those decisions. And like I again, I didn't take cash out of the company. I took no salary the first year. Like I, I could have taken some, I didn't I didn't need to. And I wasn't, I wasn't in there to, to just take every single dime of the company through the process. Cause I knew that's like fuel. Like you, you gotta have, that's gotta be in the company for the company to go grow. Otherwise you're gonna be putting yourself in a bad spot in the long run. And I had seen too many companies that rose fast, took their foot off the throttle and now they're a, a shell of what they were not even in business anymore. And you, you really can't, you really can't ever do that for long periods of time. If you want your business to be around for a long time. So, yeah, um, yeah, it's a it's a tough thing to do, and I can tell the audience too. Uh, when we were we went through that process, like the hard part was you can't do it alone. You got to get all your managers to buy in and your leaders to buy in with you. And and we had some that they they weren't getting it, they didn't understand it, and we we had to like find new homes for them, or unfortunately they had to go. Um, and then we had some some that really really wanted to. Or I should say we had some that really tapped out. I <laughs> just said I can't, I don't want a part of this. Give me give me something else and. Those are hard conversations to have with people that have been with you since your garage, but that was that was the reality of the situation. And I, you know, like there's there's good and bad that comes with all these decisions you make. You just got to decide where you want to bring your company to. What's important to you? Yeah, for sure. All right, let's take a quick break. We'll hear a quick call to action for our listeners, and then we're going to come back and and hear some more stories and and things that you've learned along the way that have kind of helped you to get to where you are today. 
Hey there, tycoons. Austin Peterson here, co-host of Tycoons of Small Biz. If you think you have what it takes to be considered a tycoon and you're wondering how you could become a featured guest, please follow and then message us at Tycoons of Small Biz on LinkedIn. We'd love to have a conversation with you to see if it is a mutually good fit. And if so, we'll get you scheduled for an interview. If you're unsure about being a guest on our podcast, but are contemplating selling your business over the next few years and you'd like to know what your business is worth, please also follow us and then message us on LinkedIn for your no obligation, informal valuation of your business. We look forward to hearing from you and thanks for listening to the Tycoons of Small Biz podcast. And now back to today's program. All right, Tycoons, welcome back. We're here with Tyler Robertson with Diesel Laptops and we're, we're talking about his origin story. So many businesses that we hear about starting in a garage, but you're listening to one of them right now who literally did it and has built it to a company that does about 75 million in revenue and has 230 employees. And so we've talked about, you know, that process a little bit, but let's get into the nitty gritty. I mean, tell us some of the things that you've kind of learned along the way, because quite honestly, every business owner makes mistakes along the way. They have things that happen to them. They have things that they do that cause things to happen to them. So I mean, I'll just kind of toss it over to you. What do you, you know, what do you want to talk about that has been maybe some learning experiences for you along the way? Yeah, I think there, I mean, I think there's been some good ones, right? Or bad ones, however you want to look at it, right? So I remember, you know, we're growing fast. It was like 3.5 million, 8 million, 16 and a half million, and then like 32 or something like that. So it it went, it went fairly quick, um, but I never did like, I was worried about sales and marketing first and I worried about everything else last. And that includes like HR and accounting. So kind of the, the two negatives, like with going down that path, like one on the accounting side, like we finally were like, Oh, let's, we should get an audit done and like go through some stuff here. You know? And I, I remember it took like a year because it was just like a disaster with QuickBooks and papers all over. And, you know, we didn't know what revenue recognition was or any of these things. And uh, you know, the concept to come sit down with me and be like, well, Look, I know you think you made money, but we need to make like you know a you know negative one point four million or one point two million negative EBITDA entry here to to shore up all these things. I'm like, what do you mean? He's just walking through it, and I'm like, oh, so I guess I guess we haven't been making money. Like, what's going on here? So, um, probably bringing in probably shoring up the financial stuff a little bit earlier and, and getting getting some professional advice probably would have been a, a great thing to do in the early days. But you know, lessons lessons learned in, in that whole side. Um, and the other one was HR. So we had we had a really bad, in some departments, we made a lot of bad hires. <laughs> I'll just say it that way. Because when I when I started, I was just looking for bodies so I could go do more things. I would literally hire like the first person that would walk in the door. And then we, you know, we started to grow and expand. And some people were remote and, and all these things. And culture is was like our sales department at the time. We were hiring a bunch of bunch of kids right out of college, right? A bunch of 20-year-olds. Like a lot of them were like ex-athletes and you know, locker room talk started happening and, you know, there was, we had, a, we had to terminate one employee for some, you know, sexual misconduct type stuff. And we we're like, wow, this, this got, this got out of hand really quick. This is not what I want my company to be. Like I was embarrassed. Right. So we had situations like that. We had employee number seven that I hired. She was hired to help me do like some basic bookkeeping and some of the HR stuff. Come to find out she was actually embezzling money from us. And so we found, you know, it was at least 30 grand that we we found. And, and she was she was putting terminated employees back on payroll, requesting manual checks and forging my signature, forging the employee's signature and just just doing stuff. And it was just completely going outside the accounting, you know, accounting never caught it for a while. So I think what I've learned is like I'm o- I'm okay actually, you know, making those mistakes. And I tell employees, like, it's okay to make mistakes, but we're definitely not gonna make them twice. So I, I look at like that embezzling thing. I'm like, man, I'm, I'm glad it was only the 20, 30, 40 grand. Like that thing could have been 400 grand before we caught it. Um, another example about controls is we sell on Amazon and we got our deposit every two weeks. And, and one time we didn't get it. And it took us a week to figure out what was going on. And we found out a hacker got into our Amazon account, changed the deposit account to somewhere else. And that's where the money went. But I look at it now, I'm like, yeah, that was 40 grand. but Man, that could have been coming a lot more because today, today's two-week deposit is magnitudes larger than the forty grand. So it, yes. it kind of forces you to put these controls in there and, and do the things. But it, the hard part of that is for me to say, like, well, we made a mistake, let's move on. And I know sometimes people really dwell on things, they get stuck on them, and then you end up 
worrying and not giving up control. So like it sucked to have an employee embezzle for me. But I'm like, man, if I if I turn into someone else here, like I'm gonna I'm gonna hold this thing back again. And I, I can't be that. So we gotta find the happy medium here between these things. And you know, we made a mistake. Let's get our CPA firm in here. Let's talk about controls and let's shore up all the all the obvious ones um, inside the company. And there's there's a thousand ways to steal from your own company. Let's just make sure we check as many of the boxes as we can through that process. So you gotta think about those things as you go forward. But they also made us who we are today. So I don't I don't think I'd go back and change them per se. Um, but it'll be nice to. Yeah, I mean, obviously nobody wants to lose money along the way or have, you know, employees that do things that that you didn't want them to do. But how do you, I guess, communicate that to your employees today in that it's okay to make a mistake, right? Like we're we're gonna learn from mistakes. It's okay and and allow them to. I guess not push the envelope because that has kind of a negative connotation, but push, right? Like we're still trying to grow at 30, 35% per year. What do you do to empower your employees to try to, to get out there and do things maybe a little bit unique, even if it ends up not working out? Yeah. I mean, we, you know, I think every company tries, right? Cause that's what they want is our employees to think outside the box, give us ideas, do, do great things for us. Um, so, you know, we have, you know, we have like, you know, diesel, every letter stands for one of the things. There's definitely one in their text about taking risks and, and doing those things. That only goes so far. So I'm glad you brought that question up. So one of the, we do an annual Christmas party. So the, usually it's like, you know, top revenue or five-year awards or whatever it is. So this year, this year we decided to do a new one. Um, and we, we totally copied this from somebody else, but it was basically like, who, you know, who took the biggest risk and failed? Um, and that's, that's. And we wanna, we really wanna make it like, hey, it's okay to take risks here. Uh, we got your back. Like I've made, I've made, heck, I've probably made seven figure mistakes over here with some decisions <laughs> on things, but I'm still standing. And I know if I don't take those risks, we, yeah, we want calculated risk. We don't wanna be reckless, but we definitely need to kind of push that envelope. We do need to like think ahead of where the market's going, where the competitors are going, what our customers need. And that's business though. Like that's entrepreneurship. Like you're, you're taking a risk every, every day and you want your employees to, but with a little bit of control around, around the process. So that's, that's one of the things I know our software dev team, they kind of have their, their week where they're just kind of let to do their, like their pet projects. Like they got something kind of cool and new and different that they've been wanting to do, but it's not a priority. It's like, Oh, okay. This week, go, go work on that and show us, show us what you got. So it's, it's tough though. It's tough to go get, 200 plus people to understand in your brain what you want them to do and how you want them to act and think inside your company. So all you can do is set the examples. And I got no problem. We do we do a monthly YouTube video for all the employees, just giving them like, hey, here's the revenue, here's the company's at, here's the updates. And we'll tell them and they're like, well, we, we tried this thing, it sucked. <laughs> we're, we're pivoting, reversing course, and we're going to go do this other thing, lesson learned, uh, let's all move on. So we try to set that culture and tone from the top by actions, not just words. Yeah, no, I, I think that's critical. And, you know, you, you kind of just glossed over it, but the fact that you send a video out to the employees every single month and you let them know where you are from a revenue standpoint, maybe from an EBITDA standpoint, you know, all those sorts of things. I, I'm curious, did you did you pick that up in reading the book, The Great Game of Business? Is that something you just kind of did? Where, where did that come from? For yeah, you? so I'm familiar, I'm familiar with The Great Game of Business. And um, actually, the whole story is on SR Spring River Manufacturing Center, which is actually owned by Navistar, who does commercial trucks where I work. So I, I know the I know the company's story well. It wasn't from there. What it, what it was is when we were going through that growing pains and that consultant I told you about earlier, one of the first things they do is like a, an employee survey. And one of the questions was like, something along the line, you know, it's like one through five or whatever, but it's like, the, you know, leadership does a great job of keeping me informed of what's going on in the company. And I saw that question, like, I'm going to nail that. Like I email them all the time. I talk to them about things they know. And I think it was like the lowest score we got. I was like, okay, like, like message received. You guys do not understand. And, and what I didn't understand was they didn't understand the vision. They didn't understand where we were going or why we were doing things. They knew what we were doing, but not, not why and what, why it was important to me and to, to the company. Um, so we really had to drill down into the why we do things and, and really be more clear. And that was one of the ideas we came up with was like, look, I, I can send out these long form emails every other week. People are probably not even reading the things, but let's start doing a video with nice graphics and charts. And um, we, we lined up their bonuses based on revenue this year, this last year. So I'm kind of like, a, they have an interest to know, like, where are we at? What do we do? 
Um, so I think it's aligning the interest, communicating with them through whatever means possible. And I, I try to get around here and say hi to people and shake hands and, and do those things as well. Let them know they're part of the team. I was just at our Dallas location last week, hadn't been there. Uh, so it was, it was great to be able to go see them and say hi and wish them a Merry Christmas and do those things. So I think the more just getting your face out there and get people to buy into the vision though, like you got it for us. That was, that was a big thing was why are we here? What's our three-year goal? What are we doing? <laughs> and getting the yeah. customer employees to understand it. And when you get that next layer deep and get your customers to understand why you're doing something, like it's a whole nother, it's a whole nother level of, of what comes after. So it's uh yeah, it's good stuff, but great, great book though. The great game business. Yeah, I, t- I tell you, so when you have 10 employees, building a culture is never easy, right? Having everybody on the same page and rowing in the same direction, it's never easy. But it comes, it becomes way harder when you get to 230 employees in multiple locations, some remote, some not. So what besides these videos, which obviously get them connected on those sorts of things, what else are you guys doing to kind of keep everybody on the same page and, and build that culture you're trying to build? Yeah. So every, every new employee in the company has to either come sit with me for 15 minutes or do a zoom with me. Just, just so I can like, who are you? What do you do? What's your background? Are you married? Like, so what do you do? Besides work? Like try to try to do that a little bit and get them comfortable with, with who we are, what my values are. So that's, that's part of the, part of the conversation as well. Um, when you're when you scale like this, it's, it's communication, right? And email email only gets you so far. We have Slack, and I can tell you, we got a really busy Slack. Like it's it's hard to keep up in there with all the people. And yeah, a lot of it's business. There's a lot of joking around and happy birthdays and passing the back and and all those things as well. That's been a, a big a big part of it. Uh, we do a lot of team events. Every department's got a budget, so they'll be like, "Oh, okay, we're gonna go do go throw axes tonight and have some beers at axe throwing, or we're gonna go do go karts, or we're gonna go do whatever." Uh, we do a lot of trade shows, so we've started to realize, like, "Well, hey, let's like we used to just kind of bring like our top salespeople to the trade shows, like, yeah, they're there to sell something." Now we're like, "Hey, let's bring some new employees. They need to see what this world's like outside the phone call and the emails and our website." They can actually see real products and talk to real customers face-to-face and do those types of things. You know, we do webinars. We do, we do a lot of just whatever we can. It's, it's never enough, right? There's always that employee like, I don't feel appreciated or I, I don't know what's going on. And I can't make people watch videos. And I can't make them do stuff. I can just put the tools out there and do those things. So we, I, I think we do as well of a job we can at a company our size and our, and our revenue, trying to make people feel like they're all important part of the team because they are. Like I always tell people, look, I can't, I can't, I can't even steer this thing by myself anymore. Forget rowing the boat. I can't do that. I can't even steer it without you guys. Like I, I need you guys to believe what I'm telling you. So you guys can go do these things for the company sets up the direction. I believe the company's going in. You're right. It gets, it gets really, really tough. The bigger you get like these guys with 10,000 employees. I have no idea these publicly traded companies do it. This is like a whole nother, whole other plateau and level they got to deal with. Yeah. Right. All right. So Speaking of, you know, big, large, publicly traded companies, what's your BHAG, right? What's the big, hairy, audacious goal that you have? And I would guess that it's changed, right? I mean, when you started to scale, call it seven years ago, now you've been in business for about eight years. So maybe it's different today than what it was then. So where where do you go from here and what's the timeline? Yeah, I mean, part of that's the why, right? Like, why do you why do you do this thing? And you're you are 100 correct. You know, why it was at first was, oh, I just want to be able to quit my job and put food on the table and a roof over my kid's head. And then it was, well, I want to go. Can I create a like an actual business here and hire employees? Like we did that. Like, okay, can I create a sustainable business that's profitable and, and can go for a while? And like, okay, we're we're there. So the next box for me has been, can we go change an industry? Like our industry is super fragmented. It has a ton of inefficiencies in it. And I look at it and I say, look, I think diesel laptops is very well positioned for everything happening with EVs and data coming off vehicles and robots driving trucks. Like I think we are well positioned to be the company to really help people improve their vehicle uh, vehicle uptime and reduce expenses and make things more efficient. Our industry has tons of problems from diesel technician shortages to truck driver shortages to diesel cost. Like there's so many problems. And I, I think we're here to help. So where all that lays into is putting the goals on paper. And I, I can, again, speak to the audience here. It was two years ago, we were, we were doing, we were probably doing like, I think it was about 32 million a year in revenue, 40, 50, whatever it was. And we set a three-year goal to do 100 million in revenue in three years. 
And when you crank out the math, you start to realize like, well, I'm going to get there 80, I'm going to get there, I should get there about 80% of the way with my existing business, which means we need to come up with $20 million of brand new business for the next three years. And you look at that two years ago, and you're like, man, how the heck are we going to go do that? Like, <laughs> it was zero to 20 million on new things. Like, that's that's a tall order while we still grow this other thing. Uh, but I, I can tell everyone, like, we're, we are, like, right on track for it. Um, so we we actually just had an executive leadership meeting, and uh, we, we came out of it. And we're like, okay, January, it's time to talk, start to talk about a five-year goal. Like, what what now? We're going to hit this. We're going to hit this one next year. I, I already, I'm not going to say it's a lock, but it's it's well in the realm of certainty. So what are we doing? Where are we going five years from now? What's the plan? What's the goals? Let's put it on paper. We got to re-rally the troops around the, the next next five years and where we're going. So I don't I don't know exactly where that is, except for the fact I know we definitely have a chance to go really positively impact an industry over the long term. And to me that's that's important to leave our little our little dent in the universe on on what we can help accomplish here. Yeah, I think you know you hit it on the head there in that a lot of people get tied up in you know, you, you said it, I mean, you, you have to set revenue goals, but people get focused on that, right? So we're going to do a hundred million by the year 2023, right? Great. It's a great goal, but you're going to have a hard time rallying employees behind that, right? Because it impacts them, but not to the level that you think it does. And in their minds, well, getting to 100 million in revenue just makes Tyler rich. <laughs> so, you know, why do I really care about that? So it has to be around something that they care about. And what you just said was changing the industry or impacting the industry. That's something you can rally employees behind. It, it, it 100% is. And lining up the strategic plan with annual bonuses. So we knew like, hey, if we need to get there, that means this year we need to hit like at least 65 or 70 million in revenue. So that's where the bonus started this year. And we gave a pretty big scale up based off that. It's a pretty good curve. So all the employees yeah. all year have been asking like, well, how do we get to the 80 million number this year? <laughs> like, yeah, because you guys get, you know, it ended up being like, you know, 40% of their salary would be a bonus at that level or something something pretty substantial. So, yeah. you know, it got everyone focused the right way, both both for them personally. And there's a lot of people that, that come to work for us just because they, they follow me on LinkedIn, they know our story. And they're like, hey, we... I, I can work anywhere, but I'd rather work for a place that has a cause. And, and this is a good cause as any. Like, let's let's go do this thing. So we have a ton of people that are just passionate about, about working here. And we want to make sure they're rewarded fully for that uh, for that passion and drive that they're, they're helping us accomplish. Yeah. So I would be remiss if I didn't ask, at least just because of your industry, did you have any ties at all to what happened with Nicola and all of that? Were there, were there any connections there at all? So, okay. So I am on record. I got my own podcast show where I talk about truck industry things. I'm on a record before Nicola even went public saying this thing is a sham. Don't invest your money. It's a complete joke. <laughs> So what's funny is all of us in the industry were looking at that workhorse and some of these other ones, like this is like pure fantasy fiction. <laughs> what's going on here? And for the audience that doesn't know, you know, Nicola Valley, they were up to like $10 billion valuation. They're down to about 1 billion now. Uh, but basically said we have a hydrogen truck that works and they had a video and really they just kind of close to you. I think they actually did that video. Uh, Tore yeah. up the hill, cut the cord, and did a commercial showing how well it worked. <laughs> Fantasy fiction at the end of the day. We all we all knew it. Our whole industry knew it. But you know, the general public was buying into the EV, hydrogen truck, the the whole. They're buying into the why, not the company. And that's that's how Nicola was able to drive that that up. And for the audience, he Trevor Milton did get convicted. He gets sentencing here pretty soon. He's this the founder of that company and CEO for a while. So they're they're still publicly traded. Uh, if you believe in hydrogen trucks, they're they're still there uh, for that. Yeah, and who knows? I mean, maybe the technology does end up coming to fruition. But you know, I, I listened to the podcast "Bad Bets" that that told the story, right? And and I knew it kind of on the fringe. And oddly enough, my partner Landon knows personally Trevor Milton and worked for another one of his companies way back when. And he knew that something was fishy from the get-go because of just different things he saw with the other companies, right? And so it's been interesting to kind of listen to the full story and understand it more than just what you see in the headlines. But I, I think what happens is sometimes you get somebody who's, for lack of a better way of putting it, a really good liar and has a personality that people just can't 
it's not that they're drawn to him. They can't look away. Right. Yep. And so yes. it's just interesting to see how that's the contrast between you building a business the right way and just going out there and doing things versus somebody who's trying to scam people. Yeah. I mean, you know, Trevor netted over a billion dollars up at Bolton so far. Right. So he hasn't, get, hasn't get, get up yet. That whole thing was just, you know, really, really unfortunate that you, you see that. And you've seen that, you've seen that play out a lot of times, like Bernie Madoff or Ponzi, Ponzi scheme or whatever. Like it, it's all been out there, but first in the industry, we're like, okay, Cummins or Detroit diesel or Daimler or Packard, these billion dollar companies who have built diesel trucks and equipment for a hundred years yet this guy did it in his basement coming up on some sketches like give me a break like we were just like this is this isn't even the realm of possibility they couldn't answer basic questions for us people that would know to ask the right questions so um it's really unfortunate and, and in hindsight i should have like figured out how to like short his stock or do something there but it, it is what it is yeah yeah you haven't listened to the podcast one of the last episodes maybe the last episode was was talking to i'll draw a blank on his name but the guy who just made a lot of money. He's never told how much he made, but he, he made a lot of money shorting the stock. Oh, Hindenburg, I'm sure the yeah. shorting Hindenburg sure probably was. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they beautiful report they came out with. I, I, I had my, I had my popcorn. I was watching, I was watching the show the whole time. It was, it was fun to watch and implosion. So question of train wreck, you can't turn away, right? You're like, this is real time. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. All right, Tyler. Well, believe it or not, we're coming to the end here. So um, for those who are listening that do obviously have an interest in working for your organization or have need of your you know, products, what's the best way to track you guys down nowadays? Yeah, diesellaptops.com. You go on there, you can learn all about us, jobs, there's a learn section on there. You can, you can do all the things you want to learn more about our industry or space. It's a for people listening, it's a great space to get into. You'll never be able to job in your life once you're in this space, whether you're fixing trucks or working at a place, there's unlimited. Um, and then I'm on LinkedIn all the time myself. So Tyler Robertson, Diesel Laptops, come find me. I've been posting my journey on LinkedIn at least once a week since day one. So you can go all the way back in time and see what it was like if you really want to. Yeah, I mean, that's how we got connected. And uh, if you're not already connected, you should connect with Josh Zolin. Z-O-L-I-N. So he has a podcast called Blue is the New White. Um, okay. And he wrote a book called Blue is the New White. And he's he's 100% on board with, you know, there's so much that can be done in the skilled trades. Such a great living can be made. And, you know, our country has pushed so much for college education for so long that everybody feels like that's the only way to get ahead in life there's a lot of ways to make a really good living without a college degree. Yeah. We're, we're opening up a new podcast series. Uh, her, her, the host is Melissa, the diesel queen. She's been a female diesel technician for, for a lot of years of John Deere dealership. And it's very similar things, right? Dirty hands, clean money. Like let's tell the stories. Let's drive awareness. Over 80,000 open diesel technician jobs on indeed.com right now. It is, and, and you can go make six figures in that field and never worry about working a day in your life, uh, finding a job. So a lot of professions out there like that, plumbers, truck drivers, electricians, they're all over, equipment operators. Yeah, for sure. All right, well, Tyler, I really appreciated the conversation. Very engaging. You've built a great organization. Congratulations and, and look forward to staying in touch. Hey, thank you very much for coming on the show. You bet, thank you. You've been listening to Tycoons of Small Biz, a podcast for small business owners by small business owners. Join us every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Arizona time for an introduction to another great tycoon. And be sure to follow us on our social media channels for links to all of our episodes and great content.